0: I'm
1: Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR.
0: Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much.
2: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present, and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. I Three CR Breakfast. Oh
3: yeah. Automated news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday,
4: 7am oh, to 8:30am. Yeah. Daily double. Clap Clap your ass.
2: <laughs> 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 Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast Hello. on the 28th of January. You're listening to myself, George, and Zoya.
5: Hi, it's really exciting. George is back in the studio.
2: Yeah, it feels good. It's been ages.
5: I know. It's just so. It's so lovely to see you sitting across from me with your smiling face. It always brightens up my my morning.
2: Oh, we're not ripping into each other yet. Happy, no. happy,
5: happy. I know. <laughs> it's been so kind and polite at the beginning of the year.
2: Thank you to the Radioactive Show. Current news and information on nuclear peace and energy issues. They had some great audio Aretha Brown featured talking about climate justice. So big show today. Mm, as always. As always, yes. We're going to be hearing some audio that has pulled from the Invasion Day rally, which will be important to get a listen to that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who couldn't make it to the rally or who, um, like us, we, we were there, but I think, I think where we were standing, I could not hear very well. I think I just chose a really poor spot it was, mm. cause there was, the sound system was, was really good. And this year they didn't confiscate the sound system at Flinders Street Station as the police did last year. Mm. So that was really, really great. Um, and 3CR, you know, as everyone's probably aware, recorded the whole thing and live broadcast it. It was amazing. So I've pulled out a couple of different little pieces that I think might be of interest that we're going to play throughout the show.
2: Cool. Looking forward to hearing Mm. that. And then we'll be talking to Joshua Badge, mm. who is a lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University and a queer activist.
5: That's gonna be really exciting. Yes. Yeah. So it, this this was this was teased last week when uh, Anya we Anya and I had a quick little a little chat about pinkwashing at the end of the show. Mm. It's something that we harp on about here at, here at Tuesday Breakfast because it's something pretty important. And so they're coming in to or coming on um to have a chat about that.
2: Yeah. So if you if it's a term you've heard but you. you don't know much about and you want to get a bit more info on that would be one to hear for sure absolutely
5: after that Archmeg i know it's really exciting so yeah. we've got we've got like a we're doing our classic touching on everything queer on the yes. show today yeah so um yes there'll be an interview uh, with bridget caldwell who will be talking to us about the um, launch of the First Nations issue of Archer Mag that's happening Very at exciting. the end of the week? Yeah. And Anya, who hasn't been able, to, who isn't able to come in for the majority of the show today because she is a busy, busy bee, is carving out time to come in and do the interview because she is that excited. Bless her. <laughs> I know. I know. Bless her cotton socks, as my <laughs> as my uh, PE teacher used to say.
2: <laughs> and finally. Uh, we're going to hear some audio from In Your Face, which is, of course, the longest-running queer program in Australia at 3CR. And I, used to, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. I, I don't know when it started, like, but a fairly long time ago. Oh, right? I love that. Several decades. Oh. And so James was having a chat to some people from Rainbow Rebellion about a rally on February 9th to mm. oppose... The religious discriminations bill and it's it's a great interview and they go through all of the issues and why we need to turn up to that rally so we'll we'll hear that at, to wrap up the show
5: today fantastic that's really exciting just just descending further into as deeper queer um amount of content as we possibly <laughs> yeah. can we're going to be swimming in queerness yes
2: so. <laughs> and so to kick off the show i i was so excited to come back because i have so much music to play mm. that i haven't shared for the whole time that I've been gone and I found something last night and I couldn't sleep and <laughs> I was just going through Facebook like waiting to be tired to go to bed and I saw th- this, uh, this like a version actually with Jim Blair, who covers Marvin Gaye Marvin Gaye's song What's Going On and it features Ellie Mae as well I think it's really beautiful and I thought it'd be great to kick off This sounds lovely kind of, Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool cover mm. um, so let's check it out
6: There's far too many of you crying.
3: Mm.
6: Brother, brother, brother. There's far too many of you dying. We have to find a way. today with your love Everybody's saying I'm wrong Because they don't want to speak about everything that we are They trying to push it under the bar. But I'm going to speak to these kids now And I'm going to show them some heart Let them know what we come from Let them know what we stand on This is black land, fam Let them know what my plans are Red money I let them know about my grandma Because she born from the fire Now that's the same one that y'all going up against now Reconcile We've been waiting But y'all been debating When y'all clueless to what the hell going on Set the fires here Well, I'm going to tell all of y'all what the time is damn cause what's that oh well we got the show ah! now that's love i'ma pair with the fams now and i'ma speak with it for your loss and hey, you're straight that did wrong 2020 gonna be the year that you turn it all around and you give it back see the bed's been burning denying my purpose for far too long with that lie lurking but fam it ain't just one is it cause you're
1: Ms. Margie Thorpe.
2: You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. You're listening to Tuesday Brecke on 3CR. You just heard the latest lacquer like version from Triple J with uh Jim Blur covering Marvin Gaye's song What's Going On featuring Ellie Mae.
5: That was a really beautiful way to start the morning. Yeah, it was cool, so hey. I think that's gonna that's gonna go on my little morning morning wake up <laughs> routine playlist. <laughs>
2: So jumping into some news headlines, courtesy of Chris Woods. Yes.
5: They, it was really, really wonderful. They can't make it in, but they still put some, put, put the effort in to send stuff in. Hi, Chris.
2: <laughs> if you're listening.
5: Yeah, let's not pretend that they're actually asleep after doing a, mm. an early morning shift.
2: Yes, fair.
5: The life of a journalist. Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: So Foreign Minister Maurice Payne has announced that a lack of consulate staff and travel restrictions are limiting government efforts to evacuate More than 100 children still under lockdown at the epicentre of the coronavirus, China's Wuhan area. As the global death toll exceeds 80 and confirmed cases hit (coughs) 2,744, the ABC reports that Payne has stressed limitations to what Australia can do, while United States and France are reportedly attempting to charter flights for evacuations. <clears throat> Excuse me. Worryingly, the Australian reports that a handful of schools in Australia plan to segregate, test and ban Chinese students and pupils who have visited China over the summer as a means of precaution. And both the virus and China's contagion program are also expected to land a $2.3 billion blow to the global economy, according to the age.
5: That's, I mean, for me, the thing that jumps out of that is, is, yeah, the the schools planning to segregate, test and ban Chinese students mm. and students who have visited China over the summer. I mean, I can I can understand the fear behind it, but it's that's 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 not great. Yeah. I mean, especially I think the thing that is really concerning me, I think, in that is less the the schools doing the schools doing it for the impact that's going to have on the student body. And there are going to be students coming in who, you know, non-students students who, haven't, who haven't been to China who, or who or who, who aren't Chinese, who are going to go, oh, they're different. They're segregated. And I'm just really concerned when those students are able to come back into school, what's going to happen? I mean, that's just really embedding at the very beginning of the year. Mm. Hey, you're different. These people are foreign. They carry a disease. Mm go after them kind yeah. of thing The 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 culture that's going to create yeah. in an environment that already can be quite difficult and full of you know bullying and whatnot yeah this so how this
2: sustains racism in the school exactly race-based yeah. bullying in schools is, is yeah. it's
5: it's very very it's very very concerning i'm just wondering what schools might be i'm really really hoping that that other other places and. It, various educational institutions with, institutions with young people are really considering how they're going to manage mm. the potential impact on, on Chinese students mm. of, of this.
2: Yeah, totally. So also another headline on debt 2.0. Social Services Minister Anne Rustin will today announce a revamp of Centrelink's payment system aimed at cutting $2.1 billion across four years in overpayments to 1.2 million working welfare recipients. According to The Australian, the Coalition will introduce legislation in the first sitting fortnight that would replace the current system, where recipients manually submit shifts, shift numbers and hourly rates with pre-filled information based on online payroll data. The data would, however, be editable and there is at present time no explanation of how this translates to $2 billion in overpayments. Rustin, at least, should be very wary of the last borderline illegal time, the coalition scheme uh, to claw back alleged welfare rorts.
5: So it just seems like it's just further um, uh, mechanisation and automisation of the information um, embedded in Centrelink, which, Mm. as we know, if it's not done, not even if it's not done appropriately. I mean, the problem with autom- or, like automation is that there will inherently be issues because there's just a, a flow-on effect. We saw this with with the bushfires and with welfare mm-hmm. payments to um, recipients of emergency relief funds, where they then become ineligible for things like Newstart. Th- there, that's that's not that was not an intentional move by the government necessarily, mm-hmm. but it was an oh. unintentional. Um, or unintended, quote unquote, unintended consequence, and it's you know, is the government genuinely thinking about the users? Users, I don't know why I'm using such an official term, but are the government really thinking about the population and about the people when they're putting this legislation in? Are they yeah. thinking about is this going to result in further, um, uh, further chasing up of people for funds and for money that? In effect, the government shouldn't be going after them for. Yeah. There's a, there's a danger in in using. And let's be let's algorithms. be
2: honest here. No one <laughs> no one getting Centrelink is really getting paid over. You exactly. Know, like, exactly. Pay, like what is the? How do you kind of work out what is mm. an adequate payment? It's all it's all ridiculous.
5: So. Absolutely. And the further we rely on algorithms, and the further we rely on on this rather than than human assessment the more the more dangerous it becomes mm-hmm. and the more likelihood there is to be issues and yeah. rorts and you know you're going to be able to have you're going to be able to have um slightly less scrupulous bodies and people be able to manipulate that system
2: mm-hmm. yeah and so thanks and um,
5: well speaking of that though oh sorry what you well, going to say change?
2: thanks chris for those headlines i'm going to jump to my dog's bref- breakfast one that i put together <laughs> late last night um, Vanessa Nakate, a Ugandan climate activist, was cropped out of a news agency photo, uh, of Greta and other climate activists at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Did you hear about that? I this? did. It,
5: oh. The one person of colour yeah. in that in that collection of fo- in that photo of activists. I mean,
2: we we're not surprised by that, no. but it's it's just another example of you know this
5: did, kind of did you see thing. what Associated Press's response was? Yes, I'll oh. i um, <laughs> <go> to that, <laughs> I, that was that was know. intentional. I was I was <laughs> throwing <laughs> <a long. laughs> throwing up the ball for you to Thank knock you. out of the park.
2: Um, so Vanessa is a 23 year old climate activist who's been attending the World Economic Forum in Davos. She spoke out about the image being cropped on Twitter. An Associated Press who shared the image responded by releasing the original uncropped image, which included Vanessa, and they claimed to BuzzFeed News that there was no ill intent. So they just say, we do this all the time. We you know, blah, 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 blah. And we regularly
5: th- just crop out people yeah. who aren't white. It's, it's our standard procedure. Yeah. Sorry, that, 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 that obviously wasn't true. That was me being sarcastic. I'm not saying that's what AP does. Mm.
2: Um, and the media has come out. Uh, the media has come under scrutiny for the coverage of the forum, generally for mainly reporting on the white activists isn't mm. there. So, it does, yeah, very much seem part and parcel of what's been going on. Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. So, I mean, it's just part of the course, isn't it, really? Yeah.
2: And SBS has reported that Terry Yumbulu Yolongu, Waramiri Tribal Chief, who was featured in Andrew Bolt's column, has been falsely quoted. Bolt quoted Mr Urembull stating that he denounced Bruce Pascoe and his book Dark Emu and was speaking on behalf of all Yolongu people. Um, Mr Yorambulu spoke with NITV News yesterday and informed them that he did not author the letter which Bolt references in the article.
5: Oh my god. Yeah.
2: This is this is pretty big news. So just a backstory, I'm sure most of you listening will have have heard about this. Bruce Pascoe's best selling book, Dark Emu, which explores the role the role of agricultural techniques used by indigenous people, has come under scrutiny by people such as Bolt who claim that this is all false. And in December last year, Minister for Home Affairs, Ms. Cashman, accused Bruce Pascoe of financially benefiting from falsely claiming to be Indigenous.
5: I know it's, and then it's just Andrew Bolt continuing that rhetoric Mm. that 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 led to the um, the court case, right, about him uh, questioning people's um status as first nations people yeah. purely because of the color of their skin yeah and i mean bruce pascoe has very very um publicly and repeatedly stated that um yes he you know he he is indigenous but he didn't find that out until he was older mm. which is a function of you know years of of you know ongoing cultural genocide and you know recognizes that he has a significant amount of of European ancestry and, you know, is not is not trying to claim to be anything other than, than what he is, mm. which is, um, you know, a First Nations person mm. who only started, I, you know, recognising and knowing that he was First Nations in his, as, as an adult. Yeah. And I think that, that that doesn't negate anything whatsoever.
2: Yeah, and you can clearly see motives coming from people like Bolt who are clearly so threatened by any of this history being brought to light Absolutely. Indigenous agriculture.
5: Absolutely, Um, and and I I find it really, really interesting that that they, it's they it it, uh, for people like Andrew Bolt getting really, really upset because someone puts together a really well-crafted, really well-researched, very, very compelling and very successful Mm. piece of history Mm. to pick things apart, and so. All of a sudden, when, I mean, frankly, they don't care about First Nations communities. They don't care about, 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 about this issue whatsoever. They don't care about the voices of First Nations people. But then all of a sudden they go, Oh, wait, no, you're actually white and you're taking away the voices of very important people. Yeah. And so suddenly they become, you know, some kind of like up in arms up-in-arms activist about quote-unquote about it just as a way to discredit and it's just incredible the heel turn that the establishment can do to bring people down.
2: Exactly and just to to give more info on that it it just it went to such an extreme there with Dutton in December uh, who referred the email to the Australian Federal Federal Police um, to try and investigate these allegations However, the AFP last week in a letter to Ms. Cashman said that they would not be pursuing a formal investigation and that that it now considered the matter finalized. Even the AFP is like, we're not doing anything. We're not investigating this. And we've had people like Marcia um, Langton come out and say, uh, and and vouch for Bruce Pascoe. But the Mm -hmm. fact that it has to get to that point where public um, First Nations people are having to come out and say, we confirm his identity you know it shouldn't be uh it shouldn't be something that they should have to go through exactly
5: and even just to play devil's advocate for a moment even if bruce pascoe weren't a first nations person which we're not saying which we're not claiming but let's just play devil's advocate for a moment even if that were the case that does not take away from the truth of dark emu and the truth of what he's of, of 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 his research and of what he is presenting it's it's that doesn't undermine the argument but, but they have to f- try and find some kind of thing to pick at because they can't find they can't find any holes in the facts of his argument yeah. Yeah. it's it's just it's it's sch- schoolyard taunting yeah. which i think is insulting to school students <laughs>
2: totally. and did you have a headline
5: as well? Yes, one last thing if we 're just going to be talking about the government just very, very briefly. Um, the Guardian has reported that um, the Department of Human Services, the Federal Department of Human Services is um, releasing highly sensitive medical records to police, so you know a couple of years ago, there was this whole thing around my health record and a fear that perhaps police might be able to access sensitive medical information. Um, through that that wasn't the case the guidelines of the of of the 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 digital health agency was that they would not release anything without a warrant and then that got cemented further by legislation that said that you know none of this information on my health record could be released without a warrant that's all fair and good that's all bedded down that's there that that privacy protection as it were um as, as best as you can have it is there What's happening though is that there's something else that the Department of Human Services is doing, which is that um, the Medicare benefit scheme and the Parliament, the the, um, pharmaceutical benefit scheme That holds information. It's not detailed medical records. It's not detailed clinical records, but it's information on prescriptions, on appointments, that kind of thing, which can indicate issues around um, any treatment people might be having for um, mental health issues, um, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, um, uh, having abortions, that kind of thing. And the guidelines for the Department of Human Services are from 2003. They're very, very vague. They're very, very broad. Um, they were not shared for years and years. They've recently been shared, but very redacted. And it's indicated that um, they can basically share this with, inf- they can share information about people with police and other agencies, but mainly with police, um, without a warrant. So they can share this information and it just can add to the joining up of dots to be able to build a case against a person um, by picking apart their sexual history or picking apart their mental health history. Mm. And it's just not it, it it doesn't align with the legislation that was developed for my health record. Mm. So there's just this very concerning backdoor um, that that appears to have popped up around uh, medical privacy.
2: Mm. Very concerning. Probably watch this space for us to yeah, understand it seems more like about this. Yeah, this this yeah. this
5: could this could become a much bigger thing.
2: So, we've got some audio from Invasion Day yes. to share. Yes, so we've
5: grabbed Which a few speeches. So we might go through a couple of them and see how much time we have for various ones. Who I are think starting with? I think as a start. So I've got a couple of different ones. Um, I think as a start it could be quite good to listen to the first speech of the day actually or the first one of the first main speeches of the day It's a little sort of short five-minute speech uh, by Kaya Nicholson-Ward. She introduces herself at the beginning and she's this really awesome young person.
0: Beautiful. Hello my name is Kaya Nicholson-Ward. I'm a um, 17-year-old Wurundjeri, Dja, Dja Wurung, and Newlay Illumurrung woman. Um, I was born in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Um, as a traditional owner of Melbourne, or NAM, I would like to acknowledge everyone here today, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and acknowledge your ancestors and my ancestors and their staunchness and resilience. And I would also like to acknowledge any elders here today. I was encouraged to talk today by my mum and cousins to give the youth's perspective about so-called Australia Day. But before I begin, I'd like to tell the story of a very important person to me. I'd like to tell the story of my fourth great uncle, William Barrack. He, he was Wurundjeri's last Nardangita, or leader, and one of our first civil rights activists and freedom fighters. He was an amazing man who did so much for my people. He was living through the settlement times and lived at Corunduk Mission in Hillsville. My people were being treated inhumanely by the British government. Many women and children were raped, kids were stolen, people were forced to work without pay, given very little clothes and blankets throughout the year. Any of my people were dying due to disease and mistreatment. Newborn babies and young children were dying at very high rates, all just because of one boat arriving in 1788. This was a very hard time and it almost wiped out 100 people altogether. In the 1800s, there was only 18 or Wurundjeri people left. Uncle William Barrack was one of them. Him and a few others walked several times from Coran Cor Dirk to the Parliament House where we are today to fight for rights for our people. That walk is roughly a couple of days and he did this fight for our rights. He was that selfless and staunch that he even walked with a broken leg carrying his sick son to the hospital in the city. He arrived at the hospital and he wasn't even allowed inside to see his son. Unfortunately, his son died inside and he still wasn't allowed in because he was black. This trauma and staunchness is brought down from generation to generation and I feel it's my role as a young person to tell his story and honour him. As without him and many other amazingly powerful Aboriginal people back then, we wouldn't be here. But unfortunately, we are here today for a sad reason and that is Jan 26. I never really understood the significance of Jan 26 until a couple of years ago. Since realising the horrible truth about the day, I generally could not believe the ignorance and disrespect people have to celebrate anything on this day. But I then realised it wasn't some of these people's fault as there is a difference between being ignorant and being uneducated. And a lot of these people celebrating Australia Day were never taught about the 60,000 plus years of history before 1788. The whole system is so brainwashed and colonised that even in 2020 schools are still not teaching the true history of this country. Germans do not celebrate Hitler who was a murderer murderer, and thief, so why do we celebrate James Cook? He was also a murderer, rapist, invader, torturer and thief. In America, a lot of states have changed their Christopher Columbus Day to Indigenous Day. Why can't we do that considering we already copy everything else America does? I believe it's time for people to open their ears and become more open-minded and respectful and to listen to First Nation people. If they listened to us, these fires happening right now most likely wouldn't be happening. If they listened to us right now, many people would still be alive and houses and land would still be saved. This is Wurundjeri Land. Standing as an will be, and Thank you.
6: The Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following, and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win, all details on our website, settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
5: You listen to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR the time is 7:30 you just heard a short excerpt um from the beginning of the invasion day rally uh on sunday and that was kaya nicholson ward a, a young Wurundjeri person who is i suppose one of the um up and coming uh leaders of the of the of one of the sort of the general um rights movement i suppose she's was i think she's only 16 it's i mean just utterly i don't know when young people are that well spoken when i'm standing here mumbling away into the microphone it's it's just phenomenal and um yeah really really great to hear her uh continuing on with some of our uh invasion day content up next we have what was actually the last speech went at Parliament steps before the march began down Burke Street. This is Robert Eggington. He is a bubble man, man from the West Coast. And he is going to uh, what you'll hear is him talking about the history of Rotnest Island and um, just some bits of Australian history that um, well, so called but, but, but large elements of the history of invasion that, that I suppose we don't hear about as much.
7: Thank you. Kiana Kaya Wanju. We're happy to be here. We've travelled from across the desert. We come from the land of the chains and the shackles. We come from a land that lays across the ocean from one of the world's greatest concentration camps through the brutal portals of the British Empire, known as Rotnest Island. The two portals that were first built in Western Australia was the Roundhouse and was Wondjamup, Rottnest Concentration Camp. Some people refer to it as a prison. We know it was a concentration camp of war. Our men were the first phase of force removal in Western Australia. Our men were shackled, chained and dragged from all corners of the west coast of this country into Rottnest Island where they died and they perished without their women, without their children and without their family and the love of the family and the love of their women and babies. They died there and died in squalor and they died like animals, chained like dogs and brought to their early death so that the white people could go into the lands of the West and start to destroy the first mother, Mother Earth to get to the minerals that laid beneath the ground that creates the privilege of the affluency of the white population and civilizations that they call the Western world. Shame on the Wadula. Perth, like any other city, you can walk around and you can see hundreds of churches of the Christian faith, from the Catholic Church to the Uniting Church and to the others. You'll come across great mosques where those of the Muslim faiths of Islam practice their religious belief systems you will find Buddhist temples that raise up like monoliths you'll find community centres that represent where Italian people gather where the Dutch gather where the Africans gather where the Asians gather but if you can find me one facility in any city in this country that our people, the indigenous people, can call their own and gather without oppression, persecution, or a move-on order, I'll give you my dirt of kingdoms. There's many, many people in this country that just literally do not even know what the word Australia means. Australia is a Latin word, it's a Greek word, meaning a place of the southern area. Australia has no meaning to Aboriginal people. We never called this place Australia. Our budja were sacred names given through ceremonies and we knew the land, the stories that we had gathered and we had transitioned from our old people since time immemorial not 40,000, 60,000, 120,000, since time itself began. Our people were forcibly removed from our religious belief systems, imprisoned. They were on the killing fields. They were shot by musket gunpowder, bayonet slashed, They died being literally not able to defend against that form of technology by simple wood fibre. We were people of the wood. The Northern Hemisphere were people of steel, fire and guns. Our people were a spiritual people living in harmony with the Earth, the Mother. And it's in that spirituality that when our people were dispossessed and the greed of what's become a consumerism and a society that fulfils its need on materialism and have basically destroyed the earth for their own will to live greater than those without is the biggest sin that they've ever committed against the planet and the first peoples of this country. I've been told I've got extremely short time here however, I'm honoured I've for many years wanted to come to Melbourne to be with the Koori nations, to be with the Koori people to celebrate the fact that as Aboriginal people we're in protest to the forced occupation of our lands and I, and I want to say one thing that the Dumbartung Aboriginal Corporation was the corporation that worked with the Fremantle City Council in Perth. It was the first city council that had actually moved the process to change the date. City of Fremantle was the first shire in Australia to change the date. (laughs) Dumbartung, however, and we crafted what we called the smoking ceremony of the roundhouse and wanjum up to cleanse the, the wara or the sickness of what our old people, our old men went through when they were shackled and chained. But Dumbarton has now become the strongest advocate in Western Australia for no date. We don't believe that 250 years of an ongoing war against our people that started in the killing fields and genocide is a never-ending evolution. It's a never-ending process. It has no end. The only thing that can end this horror of genocide is a revolution of people standing up and empowering ourselves culturally, spiritually and to fight the war until there's not one of us left standing If it's good enough, it's good enough to die for. Our planet, our mother, is worth saving. She's worth dying for. And we must give our soul, not our articulated minds, our hearts to the worth of what our mother stands for. We lose the earth. We lose the struggle. We lose our fight. There is no reparation that they can give to our people I was part of that original concept that Lydia talked about in the old Naho days, pay the rent. And I had the pleasure of having the whole afternoon um, with their mother, uh, old Elma Thorpe, who's an incredible ally of mine and a friend, I call her my sister. And we said together there yesterday, she's now 80 odd years old, there's nothing there's nothing in terms of his greed of money that he can give us in our hand that represents their wealth to make this any better for those that have suffered over 240 years in this country. So with Dumbertong's maxim, you may have heard it, you may not have, but in closing my small time here with you, Dumbertong always states, may our campfires burn forever.
6: Damn, homie. I said, Hey, Briggs, pick a date. Okay. You know what? Well, we can celebrate. Yeah, for sure. But well, we can come together, yeah. talk about the weather. Call that Australia Day. <laughs> I said, How about March 8? That's a good one. And we can do it on your next grave. We can piss off, piss on his face, <laughs> get rid of and burn out like and not skate. <laughs> the screaming love to leave it. I got <laughs> more reason to be a riff. You can believe it. Watch the looter constitutional. Who's underneath it? Yeah. Turn the flag to. I get a ticket for that I get a DWB And that's the driver my play I turn the other kick I get a knife on my back And I tell them it hurts They say I overreact The so fuck
1: time outside Jan 26. That's the day for the suckers doing that sucker shit. That's that land-taking, flag-waving attitude. Got this new and Cook dance to show you how to move. How hey, you wanna raise a flag with a rifle to make us wanna celebrate anything but survival? Nah, you watching telly for The Bachelor but wouldn't read a book about a fuckload of massacres? I remember all the blood of my characters.
3: They remember 20 recipes for lamingtons. Yeah, their ancestors got a boat ride, both
1: my sword. Until they both die <laughs> Fuck celebrating days made of misery yeah. Why Oz oh, still want the black history And that turtle gets you banned from the parliament If you ain't what? having
3: the conversation Well what? then we in it
6: Our broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to hear 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. تسمعونا
1: إلى إذاعة 3CR Community Radio أرجاء الاشتراك الآن.
6: Ninguil unguilin samuha wano li 3CR i kert Están
5: escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete
6: ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR.
5: This is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.45. You're in the studio with me, Zoya, and with George. Hello. George is back. I'm still (laughs) so excited. Halfway through the show and I'm still excited. (laughs) Um, you just heard January 26 by AB Original featuring Dan Sultan. Before that, we had a speech from the Invasion Day rally on Sunday by Robert Eggington, a Bibbulmun man from the West Coast, talking about the concentration camp on Rottnest Island. Mm. It was a really, good, really, really great speech.
2: And, and stay tuned for more audio from Invasion Day. As yeah, well, yeah we, we, we have one more speech
5: um, towards the end of the show.
2: So, on the line, we have the pleasure of being joined by Joshua Badge, who is a lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University and a queer activist. Thank you so much Good for joining morning. us this morning.
8: <laughs> oh, so, Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: <laughs> so, you're here to talk to us about pinkwashing in the context of, of Midsummer and, and Pride March. So, mm-hmm. to start off with, can you give us a bit of background on pinkwashing? Yes.
8: Yeah, so, pinkwashing is the practice of promoting something as being gay friendly kind of as a proxy for something being liberal and tolerant and it's a a wash uh quote unquote in the sense that uh people or institutions appeal to being gay friendly as a way of distracting from other things usually uh it's about distracting from violence or concealing some kind of exploitation um so Uh, is essentially a kind of PR strategy which aims to exploit LGBTI uh, human rights struggles um, to distract from other things. And, you know, uh, governments, institutions and businesses all engage in various kinds of pinkwashing.
2: It's really sad. It's It's not surprising to sort of see this very superficial level engagement with political issues that's actually a mask for the fact that they're not doing anything about, you know, these issues at a structural level.
8: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's, um, you know, in a kind of way, just uh, turning uh, the, the the language and the issues of LGBTI rights struggles um, into a kind of commodity. You know, it's, it's about um, these institutions cashing in on cultural capital, you know, mm. wanting to seem progressive, wanting to be seen to be quote unquote allies um, and kind of, you know, cash in on that. Um, without necessarily doing much or quite often anything at all. Mm.
2: Yeah, totally. And so I guess you've touched on it a little bit, but can you expand on why you think this is such a problem at the moment?
8: Um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe going through um, some examples might mm. uh, make it a little bit clearer. Yeah. You know, if we Think about the different kinds of pink washing. Um, you know, we can talk about corporate pink washing. Um, and this is where businesses and corporations adopt, um, uh, you know, gay-friendly slogans or they might employ um, uh, gay people or celebrities in their ads. Um, or, you know, especially during Pride Month, they'll just churn out products that have rainbows on them and even the pink triangle. So they uh, kind of uh, appropriate the voices and um, These symbols of the LGBTI community um, and the communities within it, um, but then you know, if you ask, you know, where is the money for this product going? Quite often, um, none of that money is going to the community or to the people who are involved in uh, its making. Um, quite often, the uh, companies that churn out pride merch, for example, um, often operate in countries where homosexuality is illegal. Sometimes by execution, um, so you know they're kind of doing this PR strategy on the one side of being you know gay friendly, while all this other stuff is happening. Hmm.
3: Um,
8: you know, thinking about the way that uh, states might try to pinkwash themselves. Um, Australia is a, a really excellent example with the um, uh, all too recent to many of us postal survey. Uh, so. After um, the passage of uh, gay marriage, the government, you know, began to style itself as progressive and modern, despite the fact that the government and senior government figures had initiated the kind of gruelling public campaign against gay marriage. um, You know, the Liberal National Party has continually, since then, tried to claim credit for passing gay marriage, despite being the party that made it illegal in the first place. Um, And specific politicians, uh, people like Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, have even personally tried to claim credit for, you know, bestowing uh, gay rights or gay marriage, um, despite deliberately opposing them or delaying them. Um, And so that kind of gets us to uh, the kind of, you know, hyper-visible participation of, Mm. you know, uh, the Liberal National Party and the Australian Labour Party at Pride marches or at Midsummer or at Mardi Gras, you know, it's a kind of PR strategy to prove uh, that they're open-minded and that they're progressive and gay-friendly. Um, but, you know, that's all just a bit of a wash for, you know, bipartisan agreements on illegal and immoral border policies mm. like internment and turn-backs, you know. They get this uh, flash front page uh, of, you know, their younger members wearing rainbows, which is really just a hunch for other things they're doing. Um, and, you know, that, that if that's true of political parties, it's doubly true of police
2: forces. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, as you mentioned, this, this is happening at the level of the government really shows you the extent of it um, and how, I guess, the depressing fact of how movements uh, and being politically aware gets used as a form of social capital.
8: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something, you know, it's just, it's such an incredibly um, useful kind of rhetoric for uh, politicians and institutions um, to co-opt uh, that uh, discourse, that language, uh, those struggles, um, and, and use them for their own purposes. Mm.
2: And so let's talk about Midsummer and Pride. What's going mm-hmm. on in this space, and, and what do we need to understand about pinkwashing in this context?
8: Yeah, so um, pinkwashing at Midsummer um, is you know if you if you go to Midsummer Carnival, if you go to Pride, you're going to see all those kinds of pinkwashing because you're going to see um, you know corporations getting involved either marching or um, uh, sponsoring something, so you know they're kind of putting their brand out there and saying yes, look, we're progressive and, and gay friendly. Um, may or may not be the case on the particular um, given instance. You'll also see the kind of um, political party pinkwashing. Um, So even, uh, you know, parties like the National Party, uh, who have been hostile to all kinds of queer communities for decades now, um, are still granted the chance to march and to kind of pinkwash Mm -hmm. that track record. Um, And then um, the kind of institutional pinkwashing of, um, you know, uh, police institutions. Uh, being at these events. So, mm-hmm. you know, Victoria Police get a stall at Midsummer and the um, uh, get to march in Pride parades as well, despite an extremely, extremely um, shoddy track record on LGBTI rights yeah. and interactions with the LGBTI community.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the reason why none of us have attended or will be attending the Midsummer events, or especially Pride, the Pride March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: Um, and, you know, just maybe to go into some backgrounds for people who um, might not be familiar, if we take a, an organisation like Victoria Police, for example, VicPol um, is a deeply, deeply homophobic and, and transphobic institution. Um, so, you know, thinking back to 2015, um, a gay police officer killed himself after months and months of extremely aggressive abuse from senior police officers being told... Things like, you, you know, he was going to get aid and die alone by people who were supposed to be his boss. Mm. Um, you know, uh, then there was the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission report, which revealed that, uh, you know, this kind of harassment uh, from senior police is endemic, is rife throughout the organisation. Um, so, you know, constables and um, people... Um, Police officers who run stations regularly using homophobic slurs or threatening gay cops with violence or saying things like, uh, you know, all gays should be gassed in a chamber um, or taken out the back and shot in the head. And these are common things that are said. Um, And, you know, in thinking about what Victoria Police has tried to do uh, to uh, combat this, uh, as it were, so... You know, Vic Paul loves to tout the liaison or the GLOW offices as a sign of progress. There's a kind of, you know, um, idea that they're doing something about this. Um, And, you know, in a way, that is a sign of progress. Uh, But at the same time, though, what does it say about Victoria Police that it's so deeply queerphobic that members of our community can't safely deal with huge parts of the organisation safely? Uh, And yet, despite all of this, uh, Victoria Police is allowed to set up a stall at Pride and, you know, kind of tout their credentials and then is allowed to, you know, uh, walk in the Pride march as if uh, Victoria Police is uh, a institution that is friendly to queer people generally or is on our side or is looking out for us. And those things historically haven't been true and still are really true now.
2: Yeah, if you just tuned in, I'm talking with Giorgio Badge, who is a queer activist and lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University. We're talking about pinkwashing at Midsummer and Pride. I mean, this really needs to be called out and really important that you mention Vic Paul in all of this. It should be mm-hmm. something that you earn to be able to have a stall and participate in Midsummer if you've shown that your organisation has uh, you know, been inclusive of, of queer people. I mean, that should be just the, the minimum to be able to engage. I-
8: Absolutely, you know, I'm definitely of the opinion as well that participation at uh, queer events should be on the basis uh, that, you know, whatever group or organisation it is uh, has, you know, a good history with our community and has solidarity with us and isn't just exploiting us as a as a PR stunt.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, and, you know, and kind of, you know, further to that point. So I've kind of outlined. Uh, very briefly, some of the history that, um, you know, LGBTI people have with the police. But also, you know, LGBTI people need to kind of extend their awareness to um, the fact that, you know, police forces aren't friends with other communities either. Um, You know, so the reason why uh, police are still allowed to march is because the, uh, you know, the people who um, uh, run uh, these kinds of events, so, you know, Mardi Gras or Midsummer. Uh, you know, middle-class white people. So they don't see uh, necessarily a problem with police because they themselves have never had a problem yeah. with police. But, you know, uh, all of, you know, the history I've gone over aside, you know, why should cops be allowed to march at pride when, you know, they're still killing black people in custody? You know, why should political parties be allowed to march at pride when they're still imprisoning people in, in indefinitely in internment camps? Uh, you know, even if it's not necessarily... Uh, our specific relationship uh, with these institutions, these institutions are completely violent and deeply problematic and, you know, they need to do far better than they're doing. Mm. Um, so definitely, um, you know, these are all kinds of things that are being uh, glossed over and are being papered over um, by their attendance and by their hyper-visible participation in these events. Yeah. And that's what Pink Washington is about.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and I guess if Midsummer's intention was to branch out and and ensure that you know a more representative um, part of the queer community would show up. They've clearly failed in that, uh, and they've lost out in not, in not having that. And I just want to kind of pull it back a little bit um, mm-hmm. uh, and ask a sort of broader question, which is probably a bit of a difficult question, but thinking about how pinkwashing is obviously very much about capitalism and how capitalism can suck mm-hmm. up a movement and, mm-hmm. and spit it out as something that's commodified and something that we have to mm-hmm. be wary of of across, of, across all movements, I'm wondering how mm-hmm. can we resist this? You know, I guess being aware is one thing, but how do we resist? Uh, you know, kind of um, seeing pinkwashing as, as, or, or not thinking of it as pinkwashing, and then thinking that it's these are positive steps that organisations are taking.
8: Yeah, I guess, I guess it's kind of um, that is a bit of a tough question because <laughs> yeah, it's kind of two things. So just, um, you know. It's not about necessarily being cynical, but, you know, institutions function for their own benefit. You know, they, they, you know, purportedly they exist to serve, but, you know, time and time again we've seen big poll do something heinous and then, you know, form ranks and protect themselves, you know, you know, power protects power. So when they're doing this thing which seemingly looks like it's a favor to someone, Just ask, you know, what are they getting out of it? You know, so what is what is Victoria Police getting out of being at Midsummer? Well, they're getting a lot of like, you know, credit, aren't they? They're getting you know credentials purportedly. Um, And the other thing is just kind of be aware of, you know. So I I, I won't go into the kind of you know technical philosophy of it, but pinkwashing. relies on a kind of normativity. So that's a technical word, but that just refers to the kind of hierarchy, the structure, the enforcement of, um, what is normal. Um, and so, you know, pinkwashing relies on the kind of, uh, uh, you know, queer identities which have been accepted into the mainstream, which are largely white, largely middle class, largely middle class, uh, largely, um, heteromasculine um so you know the kind of people that we saw uh on you know ads during the postal survey and you know ads on gay marriage going back you know uh, 10 years or so um you know the first people that come to mind are you know kind of bearded masculine guys who you know hugged on screen um so you know those are the kinds of uh, bodies, the kinds of um, people that those organisations are trying to um, co-opt. At the same time, there are all these um, different communities and different people that um, are non-normative and haven't been co-opted into the mainstream in that way, particularly of trans people, particularly of intersex people, um, who, uh, you know, at the same time as uh, the most privileged in our communities are, you know, getting welcomed into these <laughs> these problematic institutions. Um, those other communities are still experiencing violence and are still experiencing exclusion. Um, so, you know, pinkwashing kind of always involves these uh, these this kind of experience of hierarchy within our communities. So, you know, mm-hmm. how do we combat pinkwashing? Well, on the one hand, you know, just cast a a critical eye over what's happening. And the second one is just, you know, listen to people, stay connected to other communities and talk to people within your own. Um, You know, and (laughs) care about what's happening to other people. I'm not sure that there's a a more succinct (laughs) way of of putting it.
2: I think that's, yeah, I think that's a a really... A good, a good way to kind of round it off and i guess it's 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 as you said thinking critically and and pushing for real action understanding that this mm. isn't this isn't the the be all and end all uh for LGBTIQA mm-hmm. plus equality thank you so much for your time joshua um helping oh, us understand so this this me. issue uh we're all kind mm-hmm. of secret or not so secret fans of yours so
8: i really enjoyed having you on thank
2: you so much <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much
8: thank you for having me and have, have a lovely one, day sir. thank you too. Cheers.
2: That was Joshua Badge, who is a lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University and a queer activist talking about pinkwashing in the context of Midsummer.
6: 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more at
1: Community Radio,
2: please subscribe
3: now. I
5: Community
6: Radio Araja Al 3 cr Radio Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR.
2: You're listening to Tuesday Reckie on 3CR. We just had an interview that contained some content that might have brought up some things for you uh, on on queerphobia, on transphobia. Um, and if if that's the case you can contact qlife which is a service specifically for queer people and the number is one 184 527 that's one 184 527 we're going to go to a track now by Paris Alexa and this is called chocolate
4: Mama said I was a queen Look in the mirror now and I would agree. Before I didn't know that I'm bold and I'm out of control. Look at me now and I'm the girl I'm in dream. I put myself self esteem, built up a routine. Told myself no matter where i cold ain't It can't be P-A-R-S, you R S U. Can't borrow this. Wasn't made for you, it's for me, yeah, yeah, See, I'm trying to bite this. Can't get like this. You can't bottle it. Fraudulent, pretty smile, brown skin, ass, fat, wasting i sí, sí. Say yeah, I made it. I'ma shock the world back, girl.
8: go to 3cr.org.au/ shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
6: Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts
7: cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy.
3: Call 9419
7: 8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop.
3: 3CR
6: Radical Radio T-shirts. Get, Get one, one now. now.
3: <laughs>
5: You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 8.07am. Uh, you just heard. Um, uh, George, what was that song? That song was Chocolate by Paris Alexa. I'm so bad at remembering song names. I just leave it with George. (laughs) George is our resident music person. You might notice that on the days when George isn't in, there's a lot less music (laughs) because the rest of us are way too lazy to find it, whereas George comes in and she's just like,
2: oh, I want to do music.
5: And I love it. I always learn about so much. Most of my music now just comes from a combination of my dad and George. It's a really (laughs) interesting mix of things. Good (laughs) combo. um so up now we have a really exciting interview um a uh, a scoop one might say well maybe not a scoop but you know it was a, a good get on the part of uh of am super excited um bridget caldwell who uh is a co-editor at archer um and has edited archer's first uh, ever first nations edition it's super super exciting uh so good morning bridget how are you
9: Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me.
5: Oh, honestly, the pleasure is all ours. Um, Bridget, why don't we start with uh, you just telling us a little bit about yourself?
9: About me? Well, well, just, it's just... funny to you actually um, introduced me as Bridget Caldwell because I just got married two months ago and I'm having this kind of, like, identity crisis with, like, heightening my name. So, like, sometimes I hear it as Bridget Caldwell and sometimes I hear it as Bridget Caldwell Bright. And they're both equally as, like, like, I'm not uncomfortable. They both have this sort of, like, feeling now but I think, like, one may be wrong and one may be right. Um, but I am... Yeah, so I'm a, an editor. I live in, in Melbourne, but I was born... I um, grew up sort of... I uh, grew up in South Australia and lived in the NT and um, been back in Melbourne now for maybe two years. But I went to school here and, and sort of grew up here in community, so... Um, yeah, I and I'm I was co editor at Archer. I was just sort of guest editing with Maddie Clark. So, um, yeah. We um just worked on the first ever um yeah, First Nations issue of Archer magazine. Um, Archer obviously have worked with um First Nations writers before and they're they're really great at sort of getting those stories out. Um but I think one of the biggest things for this um project was that, you know, people are starting to maybe realise now in like the wider literary landscape that um I guess always like having First Nation stories and, and black stories are um are great, but it's sort of we need those stories to be also handled by First Nations editors as well. So, yeah, I think Archer, Annie Middleton, who's the publisher for Archer, approached me maybe back in June last year um, and asked me to edit um, this edition. And then um, I approached Maddie Clark because sometimes, you know, yeah, as as black boys, we're asked to sort of do these things as lone rangers sometimes. And I think that. you know, the ways that I work and the way that, like, is sort of right to me um, and reflective of communities that we work sort of um, collectively uh, and and always sort of have someone to lean on, I guess. So, yeah, that's where we're at now. Mm. Um, And so the issue comes out in... uh, Well, on Saturday, it officially launches at midsummer. (laughs)
5: <laughs> um yeah so i mean that's I, I think it's just really really exciting and um you know i get excited whenever i see uh you know a post come up on social media or on twitter or something like that just seeing that cover with with um laniac on him it it's just so awesome and so powerful um just to sort of backtrack a little bit for anyone who's listening who's not um, fully across, like, what Archer is, um, you know, who doesn't have a subscription or something like that, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, what is Archer magazine? Um,
9: so Archer is um, a magazine It's based out of Melbourne, so the office is in Melbourne, and it's um, a publication about sexuality and um, gender and identity. And it, so it's published twice a year. Um and they have sort of this focus on like lesser heard voices and that, and sort of the differing unique experiences of, um, sort of queer people and the wider like, um, LGBTIQ community. So, um, yeah, Amy Middleton, who started the publication is sort of saw this gap, I guess, in this marginalized voices that weren't, I guess, getting the focus that they deserve and weren't you know, I think we're seeing more and more now, like, in the wider literary landscape, we're seeing a lot more, and certainly maybe not enough, but we are seeing a lot more, um, you know, like, re- of more of a reflection of community um, that we live in and if the wider society is seeing, um, you know, their stories being heard. So I guess, you know, it's, And if we talk about this edition... Um, and in particular, Laniok, um, being on our cover. Um, you know, she wrote a really beautiful post on Instagram about, you know, how when she was eight years old, there wasn't anything like this, and you know, then she could never imagine sort of having her face on a cover. Um, let alone, you know, being able to be a part of like this magazine or be, even, you know, being able to read something like this, it's so reflective of of who we are. So I think it's really, um, it's really important. And I think it's like addition is, yeah, it's just like, there's a sort of a shift now where magazines and and publications are seeing that um, there's a difference between publishing black stories and, and, um, you know, engaging with First Nation writers as opposed to sort of having a full takeover of a publication and really handing over that Mm. power to somebody else rather than handing over your stories, I guess, to someone else to handle. So I think, like, the beautiful thing about um, this magazine is that, you know, Maddie Clark and I have really... have built these relationships with our community over so many years. Um, So there's that trust there that people, you know... (laughs) are happy to work with us and are comfortable working with us. So, you know, and especially when you're talking about stories that are really sort of personal and deep and raw and, um, you know, the the role of being co-editor this is taken so seriously, um, you know, to be gifted with this trust by our contributors. So, Mm -hmm.
3: you know, um,
9: yeah, I think that's really important to acknowledge that why uh, the editorial... um, you know, team had to sort of of shift if we were going to do something like this in the ways that, even the ways that we worked and um, the way that the magazine would usually sort of run its publication, run its production, line shifted as well. So it was, yeah, it was great to have that sort of um, learning experience for everyone involved.
5: Yeah, so why don't you tell me a little bit about how was the working, the editing process, the putting together process, different from from the way in which um that sort of the the more standard way i suppose or the the usual working process for a magazine might be
9: um i think the biggest thing that comes to mind with black publications is that we work a lot slower, um and that's not necessarily a bad thing but we work really at our own pace um and i think the great thing with archer is that they really did um, sort of step back and and let us take the reins a, a little bit. And and Amy and the team, they they weren't hesitant to sort of like let go of that power. So I think that was one really big thing when you are bring black editors on board, that it's not sort of, we didn't have to really fit in with how they did things. They were quite open to sort of learning the, how we did things differently. So um, at times it was sort of like maybe they didn't even know if we were going to have a magazine or have a, um, uh, like content sorted, but you know, Maddie and I in the background sort of working away the way we do, and you know, sort of like personal meetings and things like that. So, I think it, it's important to get yeah, sort of that unseeding of power from the publication that, um, yeah, helped us to sort of have a breather and work with the community the way that you know, we thought was appropriate. Because often mm. when people are asked to sort of come on board and write something or um, are approached by, you know, white literary organisations, that they, yeah, there's a sense of, yeah, a little bit of skepti- skepti- mm. <laughs> Um Yeah, there's often, like, people can be quite sceptical of how that's going to happen. So, um
5: yeah. Well, I I can't wait to read the the stories that have come out of that, um, you know, trust focused and um, powerful. Uh, environment that that's that's that sounds it's going to be really really truly unique which I which I think is quite a frustrating thing in and of itself that this shouldn't be a unique thing this shouldn't be something that we're all heralding as something exciting this should just be like oh look there's there's another there's another publication that's come out um, like do you think that that this might be indicating potentially a bit of a shift where there might hopefully be more well known publications that are doing this, or even publications that are um, Black-run publications that become more um, recognised and funded, I suppose.
9: Yeah. Um, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, this is... So, I I also was um, on the editorial team for Black Brow, which is the Black Edition of The Literature Brow, mm. um, two years ago now. Um, which was great, which was a very, you know, it was very successful and it was a really, um, you know, beautiful project. And then, you know, to do art now, but I think in critiquing that as well, it's sort of like bringing, you know, black editors on board to do an edition like this um, can have, you know, really transformative power um, for audiences, but I think also there, you know, is space now for maybe us to run our own affairs in the way that we we shouldn't need to, I guess, rely on another publication to unseed power for a couple of months, mm. if that makes sense. And that's, and that's not a criticism of the way that Archer or The Literature Brow have done things because they've both been really um, beautiful experiences and really safe experiences. I just think now... Um, you know, we're at a shift and especially for people like Maddie um, and myself as well who have, who have you know, been editors for a little bit now. But, yeah, maybe it is time that we, um, you know, see something that is just done for us, you know, by us in, in the bigger landscape, not sort of just a one-off edition here and there. Um, how that happens, I, I don't know, mm-hmm. Um and obviously there's like a lot of work involved in that, but you know hopefully that's sort of the next next goal I guess is absolutely, to get that absolutely. Happening.
5: yeah um I just have uh sort of i suppose one brief question before we go into our last little bit where we talk about um the launch events and just you know information on that um, Do you have one or two uh stories that stick out in your mind in the edition coming up that or maybe just just one story um that um you feel was really really powerful
9: um so i think maybe i'll i'll give a, a little bit away but like not too much i think there's um kind of this overarching theme of, of place mm. in this issue so place in country place in land um you know, placed in how people choose to identify in their communities. Um, so there's a really great um, piece, which I, I might be biased, but um, just one of my favourite writers and editors, Tim O'Ball, um has written a really great response to um, queer black uh, poet, poets and poetry, certain, um, yeah, certain poetry, and that, and has sort of, uh, connected that to a space or a time um, and that's a really beautiful piece, one of my favourites um, and the other one I guess, I mean they're all great and <laughs> I, like, looking at the content list again after it, you know, have gone to having already gone to print, it's sort of like you forget the power that was in, that is, that is in these pages yeah. so um, yeah and there's you know another one by um India Money, who is one of uh gonna be one of our performers at the launch um but they've written about you know growing up and and their shifting identity as um you know as performing and um performing in drag and meeting this sort of ultra ego i guess um of theirs so yeah it's it's all really um really beautiful stories, but I think like that's it's the really, um Aspect of safety and like you know, handling those stories as well. Uh, I had written for oh, Maddie and I had both written for artists before, so I guess we sort of had this understanding of the power mm. in, in that comes with telling those stories from this deeper level. Um, but also sort of acknowledging like how much people have the right to choose to keep to themselves and mm. how much they can share. So I think, yeah. um Yeah, this edition's been a real testament to the strength that, like, black people hold and queer people hold in that our voices do have some transformative power, but, you know, also they don't always need to be shared. Um, And, yeah, so I think that's really important to to note as well when when people are sort of reading through this, that Mm. these have been shared really um, trustingly and, um, yeah, they should be treated with, yeah, real
5: respect, I guess. Absolutely. Um, I'm afraid um, that's sort of all we have time for at the moment, but um, the event, Archer Magazine's First Nations issue launch is, I believe it's at Testing Grounds this uh, Saturday, Um, and tickets are available on the Midsummer website, right? Yeah,
9: so it's from 3 p.m. on Saturday. um, Tickets are only $10. You can get them from the website. You'll be able to buy a magazine on the night as well. Um, there'll be some performers, um, some readings, and it'll just be a really beautiful, beautiful little space and time for us to all hang out and share together and oh,
5: celebrate. That's really exciting. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh Bridget Caldwell Bright. Um, I'm just testing out your 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 two your two name choices to try and help you out with that. How does it sound? Does I think they, I think they both sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think keep people on their toes with your name. I think. Um, yeah, well, I'm just gonna. I mean,
9: that's feminism. It's the right choice. I mean, exactly,
5: exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about talk about um, the launch of Archer's first ever First Nations issue, and um, we look forward to reading it.
6: Thank you. Thanks so much. Hello, this is Archie Roach, and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR.
1: I'm going to start am a star, on the map, am I'm I'm in name, I'm a star, i on I'm 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 a i i
6: Catch longer than a bus, man, we some warriors digging at your heart through the party, yeah Hey, i say the top of hey, the Aria She got a lot rest of the party, yeah. Me and my wife the party, yeah. We don't feel nine, we the hardest, yeah Spending cash for fun, get us all up.
1: She won't gonna wanna, to cause the real is real. On the news, I'm a prime on the crime With the dollar sign, money for my mind, yeah. Seven on the time, I'm living my best life, because alive, God. Everything we do a give thanks. Tell them how we do love the L-D-W. One thing, they ought to feel oh. I need <laughs> now come if you're Everything do Tell them
5: how we do the One thing, they ought to feel I need now come if you I'm listening That is the end of our show had a fantastic fantastic show um just a quick uh recap um about uh we've had some speeches from the invasion day rally and on that uh if anyone wants to pay the rent um, there's some list of organisations, uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Grandmothers Against Removals, Jabbarong Protection Agency, Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, Kuru Youth Council, JIRA, Black Rainbow, Rumbalara Aboriginal Cooperative, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Victorian Child Care Agency and the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service.
2: Thanks for that Zoe, good for us to remember what those organisations are that we mm. can donate to. We'd like to say thank you to all of our guests today, Joshua Badge and Bridget (laughs) Caldwell-Bright. And we had a lot of uh, promises that we broke of things we were going to play that we ran out of time for, so we we sincerely apologize for that. But we will be bringing you that content next week. So that's a conversation with James from In Your Face about uh, the upcoming rally on Feb 9th to oppose the Religious Discriminations Bill and more audio from Invasion Day. Mm -hmm. That's all for us today. What a great show. Yeah. We'll we'll catch you next week. Yeah, and up next now
5: is Accent of Women.
2: With Ayan Shua. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast
9: produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.